I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of the Trues, featuring my guest today on the program, guitar player John Angus MacDonald. Let me tell you a little bit about John Angus MacDonald and the Trues. Like most stories, this one begins in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. Roughly 100 miles northeast of Halifax, Antigonish is a city that's not burdened by any major industrial operations. The two main employment centers are St. Martha's Hospital and St. Francis Xavier University. It's a quiet, liberally-minded city with cold winters and humid summers and Scottish roots that date back to the late 1700s. I know what you're thinking. The live music scene there must be thriving. Well, to be fair, only 100 miles away, Halifax has given us bands like Thrush Hermit and Sloan, but Antigonish is not really the place to be for an up-and-coming band. But you have to start somewhere, and that's exactly what brothers Colin and John Angus MacDonald did. They grabbed their drummer cousin Sean Dalton and bass-playing pal Jack Siprick, and boom, the Trues were born. Well, not exactly, not yet at least. Operating under the name One-Eyed Trouser, which was taken from Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, the band decided to then shorten their name to Trouser. Then they changed it again, this time to toad the wet sprocket. That's a joke for all you Monty Python fans out there. For the rest of you, take our word for it. It was funny. The band went from Trouser to the Trues, and they decided the best way to be a cohesive rock and roll band was to move to Niagara Falls and live together in a big rented house. Hey, it worked for the band, and it worked for Counting Crows. But I'll tell you who it didn't work for. My three best friends and I from college— After graduation, we moved into a big house in San Francisco, and in just two months, we realized we hated each other. But back to our story. Now, the Trues not only got along, they completely gelled artistically. With an EP under their belt, the band entered CHTZ's Rock Search Contest, and they knocked it out of the park. Their prize for winning was a recording deal with Bumstead Productions, which was huge, but... 
the fact that Big Sugar's Gordy Johnson was going to produce their record was even huger. Johnson was the perfect guiding force for the young band, and under his tutelage, they recorded their 2003 debut, House of Ill Fame. Containing a handful of singles, it was the song Not Ready to Go that hit the top spot on Canadian rock radio. Not only did the album go gold, the Trues got a Juno nomination for New Group of the Year, with the award eventually going to Billy Talent. Shaking off that loss, the band released their scorching sophomore record, Den of Thieves. The album was produced by the Bronx-born, Grammy Award-winning producer Jack Douglas, who not only helmed albums by Aerosmith and Cheap Trick, he had worked in his early days as a songwriter for Robert Kennedy's senatorial campaign. I'll bet you didn't even know that was a job. Well, it was, and he had it. Anyway, Den of Thieves was a monster, and it spawned another handful of singles, including another number one song, with the track Yearning. To quote Shakespeare, the trues were tearing shit up. 2008's No Time for Later kept up the band's winning ways. It gave the trues their third number one single with Hold Me in Your Arms, and the track Can't Stop Laughing was the band's 10th top 10 single. Not only that, but they got two more Juno nominations for both album and group of the year. Next came 2011's rootsier effort, Hope and Ruin. It was produced by John Angus and the Tragically Hips' Gord Sinclair, and it was recorded at the Hips' Bathhouse Studio in Ontario. Now, Hope and Ruin didn't just light up Canada. It became a big hit in Australia, the UK, and the US, and as a result, the Trues toured heavily behind it the zenith of their globe-trotting, supporting Bruce Springsteen in New Brunswick. By the time the True's self-titled fifth album hit shelves in 2014, they were an institution. The album went straight to number one, it brought their top ten single count to 16, and it found them playing Nova Scotia's first-ever Cape Fest, alongside Aerosmith and Slash. Now, the Trues had always admired the career trajectory of R.E.M., so it was kind of fitting that, like their heroes, their drummer was the first to exit the band. In 2015, drummer Sean Dalton threw in his sticks. He issued a statement saying nothing weird was going on, he just wanted to be with his family, and that was that. The following year, the band put out Time Capsule, a 20-track career retrospective. They toured with Weezer, and they showed everyone their new drummer, Gavin McGuire, was here to stay. Except for the fact that he wasn't. More on that in a second. Out this week is The True's sixth album. It's called Civilian Airs, and it's a killer. From the breathy muscle of vintage love to the crunchy stomp of time speeding up to the stadium sing-along of Bar Star, Civilian Airs is further proof that The True's refuse to make the same record twice and are always moving boldly forward. Not only that, but Civilian Airs features the introduction to The True's newest member, former Big Sugar drummer Chris Gormley. See how everything comes full circle? John Angus McDonald talked to me from his home in Hamilton. There was a baby crying, there was a dog barking, and in between all that, there was a great conversation about life, about music, and about brotherhood. Enjoy my chat with John Angus McDonald of The Trues, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. We 
we were sort of amassing material for like almost the past three years, uh, moving towards a new record. But we had a lot of change within the band, like interpersonally. We lost a, a founding member. We sort of parted ways with him and we changed management. And uh, there was just a lot of change in the air in general. Uh, and all the while we were writing, but I think we were a little bit like out in the wilderness with it. Like nothing seemed to be um, cohesive with one another. Uh, but that being said, a lot of those songs stuck around and ended up on the record. But there's like five songs that were all written within a week or two of one another when we hooked up with the producer, Derek Hoffman. And those are Time Speeding Up, Bar Star, Harder to Love, No More Saying Goodbye, and The New Us. And those were all written like within two weeks of one another. I know there's a little bit of a rotation with the, in the drumming position. Um, how challenging is that? Yeah. How has that changed? Because I remember when, when Bill Barry left R.E.M., I thought, in my selfish brain, I thought, well, he's just the drummer. But it changed the entire sound of the band. It did. Um, and, and in some ways, in some cases, not for the better. Um, what was it like? How did you adapt with the departure of your original drummer? And then another guy came in and was gone after that, right? Yeah. So Sean, Sean was like a founding member like in a sort of Bill Barry role. And and you're right, especially when it's like your band against the world, you f you forge a chemistry early on that can't be replicated. Right. Um, so we sort of thought that, and I imagine REM were in the same boat. We thought that let's not try to replicate it, and let's uh, let's welcome whatever is next. You know. Um, so Gavin filled in much more as like a touring drummer than a creative partner uh, when Sean left, and he was a great touring drummer. But we realized very quickly we didn't have the most compatible creative chemistry. And we're a band that likes to write as a band. We like when everybody's contributing. And we like when it's a, a big uh, free-for-all of ideas and, and interaction and creativity. And, and that wasn't the case with Gab. We never developed that chemistry with him. Um, so we met this other guy named Chris that we've known for, well, we've known him for a while. But we started writing with him and started creating with him. And at first we thought we were writing for his band because he had another band called Daylight for Dead Eyes. Uh, but then we quickly realized we were writing for for our band. And then um, we brought him in to play on on most of the stuff on the record. The stuff that Gavin played on was was tracked before he left the band. Um, and so we just kept the drums. Um, but but Chris plays on, I think, about 70% of the record. When Sean was gone and you guys were playing, did it feel different to you? Did it feel like there's a phantom limb of like the guy you used to know keeping time is no longer doing that? We did. We had that creatively. Um, live, we, it was almost like a relief <laughs> at, the, at the risk of sounding a, like an asshole. We just, I think we were like interpersonally, we weren't getting along that well, but by, by the end of it. So everything was very much at loggerheads. Like we couldn't, we couldn't even really discuss the show after the show. That's how intense it had gotten, you know, like we just couldn't see eye to eye on, on what even was a good show. And everybody was so sensitive about everybody else's feedback and, and it always triggered a fight. So we just stopped talking about it, and it and that was really unhealthy. So a, a lot of it was like at first when he left, a lot of it was like almost like a breath of fresh air. We were on a different adventure suddenly, and it was really fun, and the shows were really good. But it wasn't until we sort of regrouped to write that we realized, you know, what we had together. Um, I guess we took for granted. Yeah, I mean, and and also on record, he was a hell of a drummer. Yeah, he is you know. a hell of a drummer. He was a hell of a drummer live too. It was just. Um, it was just a, it, we were too close. Like we were yeah. just too close. Like not only are like my brother and I were brothers, but he was our cousin. He is our cousin, Sean. Um, and, and we already knew each other really, really well when we started the band. And then just at 15 years of drama 
and you know road and being tired and all this business stuff and everything that goes on just add 15 years of that to an already close relationship and it becomes can become combustible I didn't. Uh, I didn't know he was your cousin. I was so distracted by the fact that you guys were brothers. I forgot that he was. I think I'd known that at one point, but I forgot he was your cousin. Yeah, yeah. He's like a. He's a distant cousin, but his his mom and my dad are first cousins. So okay. I, I can't. Even, I'm not even sure what that makes us. Second cousins or removed or something like that. It makes you related. Makes us related. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if that family reunion is like. How's the band going? You know what? I haven't seen him in four years, and isn't that oh, funny? Man. Like we we went fifteen years of like seeing each other daily, and uh, I haven't seen him in four years. We've we've had correspondence, and we've we've you know we've talked a little bit, but um, it's we haven't I haven't seen him face to face in four years. I'm really intrigued by the idea of discussing the show after the show. Is that something that you that you like to do? Is that something that you usually do? I've never heard a band say that before. I think most bands do it. I mean, I. I <clears throat> We we don't live we don't recreate the same show night after night like uh, you know it's like the set list changes nightly uh, tricks and things come and go and 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 the flow of the show can change so it's good to take take note of what what we all thought worked and what we all thought maybe didn't work so well just because on a tour especially you're just going to do it the next night so you might as well be honing it in you know as you go um, and I, a lot of bands do that especially bands that that don't like play the tracks or don't you know some bands go out it's like Cirque du Soleil you just get the same show every yeah. night no matter what yeah but as we've, we've never been interested in that kind of band so and we aren't that kind of band I don't, I don't even like really seeing those kind of bands live I, I just don't find it as as fun I think watching your favorite band to me should feel like watching your team play like if you knew they were going to win every time you wouldn't go you know it's like there's the chance you want them to be playing on the edge of their ability and you want the possibility that it might not come together to be there. You know what I mean? Because right. then when it does come together, it's it's glorious. You know, it's like it gives you chills. So when you discuss the show after the show, um, how – I'm curious about that discussion. Like is that usually like sort of forensic or is it more improvisational? I mean how does it go? It can go any which way. The best conversation you can have after a show is just a bunch of high fives. You know, like, <laughs> oh, man, we, we nailed it. Like yeah. the set list was great. The audience was great. It had a great flow. You know, good banter. Nobody overplayed. Everything was great. Um, those are the best ones. But then other times it's just like, well, I thought that really sucked. And, and the, I mean, the problem is, you know, not getting personal. And that was the, that's where it got it got to a place with, with our last dynamic where we couldn't even really take notes or anything like that. It just because it became personal always. So the best thing is like, well, you know, I thought tired of waiting was too slow tonight. Okay, cool. I'll make that faster tomorrow night. It's like, cool. And I thought that the solo went on a little, a little long in this song. Okay, cool. We'll fix that. Oh, and you know that thing you said between that song and that song? That, that didn't really work. <laughs> you know, like, things like that, you know? like, and, and if you can keep it lighthearted and everybody can keep their ego in check, then it's it, it's really productive, you know, because you're you're just out there to, to improve and, and, and make a great night happen for everybody. Do you ever find that your your skin gets thin if someone goes, "Hey, what was that thing you did?" Do you go, "Ah, does it does it how do you take the yeah. criticism?" Yeah, yeah. No, it's not easy. I mean, like, you know, we're brothers too, so we could have a complete blowout over it and then go for a beer after, you know what I mean? I think right. that's one of the benefits, one of the secrets about brother bands. Everybody's like, "Oh, they fight so much." It's like, "Yeah, but they get over it a lot better." Than like say Axel and Slash or something, right? You know what I mean? Right. Like like the Gallagher's, they can get over it. The Kinks, they can get over it. The Robinsons, they can get over it. Those bands will all 
get back together. I promise. <laughs> you I, know what I mean? Yeah. I was going to ask you about that because I, with the Gallagher's, I, I understand they weren't that close to begin with, but you and your brother seem like you guys are really tight. Yeah. Yeah. We, we started playing together in our teens before that we weren't necessarily tight, you know, as tight as anybody else that lives in the same house. Uh, but we became uh, closer when my parents, my dad took a job in the Caribbean teaching at the universities down there. And we were moved from the East coast of Canada down into like Jamaica and Barbados for a couple of years. Um, and I mean, that sounds kind of luxurious, but it really wasn't because there's five kids and he was living on a professor's salary in a third world ish place. So it was yeah. kind of an interesting like culture shock. And one of the things we started doing is to like, I guess it was like boredom. We didn't have a lot of friends at first was just to like play music together. Um, and that was at the height of like REM and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all that exciting stuff happening in the early nineties. So we started playing together like almost every day. And then when we came back to Canada, we decided we would keep doing that. When did you first realize that you were a musician? You know, when did it, when did it occur to you like, Oh, this is, this feels right to me. I don't remember it. Never think, I don't remember ever not thinking that, you know, I, yeah. I remember, um, music was like always, a, like a secret I held, like I cherished, you know, like I just knew how it made me feel. And even before I knew how to play it, I, I felt, I felt deeply connected to it, um, in my earliest memories. So I don't think it was a conscious decision. I think choosing my instrument maybe was cause I wanted to play drums at first. Yeah. Um, and then Sean actually, cause we were hanging out when we were kids too. He said, no, no, I'm I play drums. So you play something else. <laughs> so I picked the I picked guitar. It's funny you mentioned Nirvana. You guys remind me of Nirvana in the sense that if you listen to the first Trues album, you guys seem – you're one of those few bands that arrived, at least to my ears, fully formed. I mean you seem like you knew who you were. If you listen to Bleach, um, that's a band who knew who they were. Um, mm. Not that you haven't evolved because you've evolved in, in an amazing way. Um, mm -hmm. But it's remarkable to me how fully formed that sound was of the Trues. And I wonder like – what kind of discussion there was about the sonic attack that you guys decided on, or did it just happen? Uh, I think it was a little bit of both. Like, I think our first producer was really helpful. Uh, do you know who Big Sugar is? Yeah, I love Big Sugar. We started acquiring attention and getting an agent, and eventually we got picked up by a manager who signed us, and we signed with him because he had Big Sugar. We're like, that's that's good enough for us. If he's good, you know, if he knows what he's doing with them. So then we then Gordy became our producer because of that relationship. And he helped us, he it helped us find that sound. What he helped us find was like where we all kind of shined. Like he, he, he was the first person to notice that Collins sounded a lot better in a higher register. I remember like in a lot, a lot of songs we were playing in the key of G or A, he'd be like kicking it up to E. Um, and Collins suddenly his voice just flew out of the speaker in a, in a whole new way. And he's been singing sort of up there ever since. But I think he was, he was helping Colin, who was like 22 years old, find his voice and he was like a smart enough musician to say like you know this kid just needs you know a little guidance to find out where he really shines and i think same with that, kind of everybody in the band and i think we took those building blocks and sort of ran with them and you know obviously toured our butts off in those first couple of years we we're playing 200 or more times a, a year so it really forged and crystallized kind of quickly were your parents, uh, your dad's an academic, uh, were your parents supportive of this direction that you guys took for your career? My dad was a musician first, um, and his mom was a musician. And she was one of the best jazz piano players in uh, Nova Scotia. 
Wow. So she, she supported her, all her four of her brothers went off to fight in the war and she supported the family playing jazz piano. And so I grew up with music all around and I grew up with her practicing cause we were close with, with her, uh, two hours in the morning and she was phenomenal. People always tell me, you know, your grandmother is the best musician in this town and all this kind of stuff. So it was always around and, and dad gave it a shot and, uh, got into academia. Uh, so they were always supportive because they, they, it was almost like a family tradition of sorts, you know, I guess we just took it a little further and made it into like an economic career. So it wasn't that out of left field that we should play music. Um, and I think they just saw that early on we were dedicated and we weren't going to like, we weren't going to like squander it. Like when we moved away to play music, we were kind of like really driven to do something about it. And like we booked, we didn't know what we were doing, but we booked ourselves a ton of shows and we were always trying. And I think they just saw our, our passion and the sort of drive for it. And they knew that we'd be all right. You know? As if we couldn't see more than what we're meant to be. And we want it all. This is love. This is. 
what's your relationship now with your instrument? Like, do you feel more efficient as a player um, than you did when you started? I mean, what what's changed for you on the guitar? Um, I, I definitely, it's different. I think, um, that's a really good question, but I think that I don't practice, um, as much as I did when I was like in my early twenties where I just like, uh, I wanted to learn. I was like a sponge. I just wanted to learn everything and, and practice everything and, and everything I loved. I wanted to figure out. Um, I think now I, my relationship with it is just more creative. Like, I feel like I pick it up when I have something to, express or i feel like i want to get something new out of it um i also have, i try to play a lot of other instruments which feeds into playing guitar i i, I practice piano just because I, I like the sort of meditative quality of it i also collect um like i have dulcimers and mandolins and and, and uh you know all these different uh stringed instruments i collect from all over the place which also keep me inspired to to write and but yeah, I don't feel, I, I just, you know, I don't sit down to like run scales or anything anymore, or, you know, or, or, you know, I just, I think it's a more creative relationship maybe now. You know, most musicians I talk to say the same thing, but they, they don't practice the way that they did um, because yeah. they're trying, they're expanding in, in creative ways and to just simply practice maybe feels limiting. Yeah. Yeah. It feels really boring. I, I you know, I feel like there's um, so little time that if I wanted to like, I'm not interested in just getting a little faster. You know what I mean? That doesn't right. really appeal to me. I, I think there's not a lot of time in this life, and I'd rather learn something totally new if I'm going to dedicate that kind of those kind of hours to it. You know what I mean? I like virtuo like I admire I admire virtuosos like Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page. But what I admire most of them about them is the what they get out of it, the melodies they can squeeze out of the thing. You know what I mean? You. It's funny. I was talking to uh, Tara Lightfoot, who I'm sure I'm sure you've run across. Yeah. Um, yeah, we live in the same town. Yeah, yeah. And she was saying that she thought it was really important because she's playing cello now. Um, and she was saying it's very important for adults to pick up new instruments all the time. Yeah, you agree? I agree. I totally agree. Like I said, I, I try to play piano an hour a day, which is like, I'm not, I don't think I'll ever do it live. But um, it, immediately you start writing, you start hearing music differently. You know, you, start, you, you just get out of your, uh, your box, you know, in your head, your mental box kind of thing. It's been, a lot of our listeners are, are young musicians, and to hear you say that you, you play piano every day, that's just for you. Um, yeah. Who knows? You might play live one day, but that's just for your own personal enrichment. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. I think it's important to stay curious. It's, an, it's important to stay engaged with music because it, it can get really cynical when it's your career and your job and there's a whole business that goes along with it, which can really distract you and, and distract you from the fact that you love music and you're still curious about it. And so walking into a, a place where you're, you know, you're not sure where your fingers are supposed to go, that like keeps your curiosity, keeps that spark alive. So you want to keep challenging yourself as an artist. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, talk a bit about uh, Max from the Arkells. And first of all, that's a great, they're a great band. I love that band. Um, and I was mm -hmm. happy to see that he was working with you guys on, on this record. How did that come about? Well, he's a buddy, you know, um, the Arkells, when they first came around, we were about three records in when they did their debut album. So we would, they would support us all the time on the road. And so I, I met them years ago. And since moving to Hamilton, where Max also lives, 
uh, we'd be bumping into each other at, you know, the, the bar or at coffee shops or restaurants. And, um, eventually we, we get to talk about music or inevitably we get to talk about music. And I just basically started showing him our demos, you know, he'd come by the house and we'd have a beer or something. And I'd play him. Here's what we got. Here's where we're at. And like, like I mentioned, or like I alluded to earlier, I felt like we were really in the wilderness creatively. We like, we were writing songs, but they didn't feel like the next Trues album just yet. They felt a little lopsided or something. So we needed, I just wanted feedback. And, and the Arkells have been on an incredible meteoric sort of uh, yeah. high yeah. for a while. So, um, so I, I value his opinion, you know, he definitely has his finger on the pulse of what's happening. And so I'd just be playing them and, and getting his feedback. And then that feedback turned into a little more like, almost like the producer role where I was like, why don't you come in the studio with us and let's, let's collaborate. So we did that on three, three songs. You know, what's cool about that band is they are not the same band as when they started. They, they talk about an evolution of a band. They've really, they sound different to me. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Well, they had a member, they did have one member leave after the second record. Um, and I think that they're be, they've definitely become more of a pop band and less of a rock band. I think, and I think that was conscious. I don't think they would mind me saying that. I just think that's where their interests lie. And, and it's, it's done really well by them. Yeah. How, in terms of you, in terms of how you challenge yourself, um, I know when I write, I try to say, like, no sentence should be a throwaway sentence. And, that, and that's, that's the reason why I work so slowly, <laughs> because I'm yeah. like, that one sucks. Throw that one away. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you feel with each Trues album, do you feel that you have, you have to keep upping it? Um, because there's bands I've heard where I go, wow, this one is not as good as the first record. Or you can tell it was a step backwards. With you guys, it's always these big leaps forward. And I wonder what the how you guys consistently do that. And is it because you are always challenging yourself to push it even harder each time? Yeah, I think I, I, I think that we, we tell ourselves that. Um, you know, we never want to phone it in. Um, and we work really, really hard. Like you're not always in control of the result. Uh, we've made records that people have considered a step back or, you know, like I think of our fourth album, Hope and Room, which we made at the Tragically Hip studio. And it, it took us in a bit of a more organic and folky direction and certain fans didn't, fo- didn't want to follow us there, which is fine. You know, it's, it's, it's just the only thing you can control is, is, is working your hardest at, at what you're doing and, and not, and, and being really, like you said, really your, be your own sort of quality control. Um, and, and if, and the results will vary. I mean, not everybody's going to love every direction that you take, but, um, but I think you can have your own standard that you try to meet every time as, as you say about your writing. Do you feel that you're more understanding now of someone like Dylan deciding to plug in or change styles, you know, the way he did, um, do you because a lot of times it's very easy to make the same record over and over again. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, nothing against Def Leppard, they do a great job of it, but it is just the same record to me over and over yeah. again. Do you understand, like, are you more sympathetic for musicians who've taken chances like Neil yeah. Young, like Elvis Costello, like any of those guys? Uh, I mean, I love all of those guys for all those reasons, but and and I think. I think you have to follow the muse, you know, as, as flaky as that might sound. But like when, when we got together with Derek and those five songs came in, like, I want to say like a week and a half or two weeks, it was really quick work. And they sounded how they did, which we were a little bit like, you know, when we wake up in the middle of the night, uh, be like, oh, wait, our fans might think this is like totally out of left field because it has like a like it was created in the box. We recorded them the day we wrote them using like 
triggers and samples. We, we replaced it all eventually, but essentially what you hear is the record. I mean, it was made really quick and, and it was definitely the tones were to us, they were totally new and up to date. Um, so you do maybe question like how it'll go over, but the thing is that you don't, you don't question or you don't second guess when it's coming that easily. Like there's definitely something magical happening there. So if, if, if Dylan picked up an electric guitar and wrote 10 songs in three weeks, he'd be like, I'm onto something, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't care if my fans dig it, you know what I mean? So yeah, I think when you're, when your creative juices are firing and flowing that naturally, you have to trust that. It's as much as you can second guess it, you have to trust it. You, yeah, and, and I also wonder, like, in terms of the fans, you think of it as this kind of, like, critical organism that sort of is out there in the world. And so when you're writing songs, do you, do you think about, like, what will the fans think of this? Do you always think of that in the back of your head, or do you try not to? We, no, we, that's like a second-guessing thought. Yeah. You know, like, we, at the time, we don't really think about it. But then we, we might get the songs in the can and be super jacked and then be like, oh, I wonder what... I wonder what they're going to think about this. But oftentimes they need to catch up and that's not to sound arrogant in any way, but like we'll put a record out and tour it and then we'll put another record out and tour that. And by the time we're touring that record, the one before it now, they're calling it classic. And I'm like, well, when we put it out at the time, you didn't see it that way. Right. You know what I mean? So, so sometimes they just have to um, get used to it. Like, you, cause you've, you've had all this time to live with it and create it and get comfortable with it. And they have to do that in a much shorter amount of time. I don't know if my dog is barking down there. Sorry about that. Um, I have a four-year-old who likes to terrorize my dog. So. But anyway, so yeah, they just, sometimes they just need to catch up and get on your, get on your wavelength, you know? And, and once they do, they really appreciate, you know, where you're at. I'm surprised there was a little backlash with Hope and Rune. It's not like you made a disco album. I love that record, but I'm surprised Canadian fans were, weren't uh, on board immediately with it. It, it wasn't all fans. Like, it, you know, it, radio received it really well and it, it did, it was successful. But yeah. I think we'd get on the road and, and people would be like, oh, you know, there's not a lot of like heavy riff, riff rockers on this one. Or, you know, we just, we just hear feedback from people that have seen us, you know, dozens and dozens of time of times that, you know, didn't maybe have the, the heaviness of the previous album, No Time for Later, or, you know, just things like that. Um, which I, I still think the record aged really well, um, but I, I can see where they're coming from, it, it, especially following No Time for Later, which was a really heavy record. Um, but again, it just occupies its own space, and it's certain people's favorite record, you know, for that reason. So you can't really control how everything lands. We've no. learned that. Did you listen to a lot of hard music when you were growing up? Yeah, a fair amount. I think Colin was even more like Colin went through like a metal phase you know of when he was younger i was always more into like the beatles and, and and older stuff but like but he liked like the misfits and he liked metallica and he liked megadeth and he like he went through all of that stuff um so that that creeps in every now and again and we you know like guns and roses i mean you know who, who didn't love them when they were happening you know and, and and to this day those records still sound amazing and and they're they're an influence aerosmith's an influence you know early aerosmith um and you know all zeppelin of course so like big riffs do manifest themselves and we nothing you know there's nothing like it when it works what about your brother's work uh dazzles you lately like what when he brings a song to you just kind of, do you sometimes go good god this guy just keeps getting better sometimes yeah but colin is also like very diligent worker and he when he's in a writing mode he's writing songs every day 
so more it's like I'm wading through like so much material looking for that sort of diamond, you know, and not that it's all bad. It's, it's all got something, but like, we, I think when I, I know it when I hear it with, with his stuff, you know, I just know it when I hear it, I'm like, that's going to be on the record guaranteed. Let's work on that one. You know what I mean? Or let's, let's develop that a little further. Like I, I just know them when I hear them, I guess, cause we've been working together for so long and, and the same goes the other way too. I mean, we, we, I bring stuff to him all the time that it, that doesn't do much for him and Jack to him as well. But but we sort of all know when something's meeting that whatever that thing is that we know is got something, it's got legs. And then that's the one we dive in on and tend to like still work even harder. You know, I'll, uh, I'll drop a bridge into something he's written all the time. That's sort of what I love to do is like, let's figure out where the left field change is in this song, you know? What is your strength, do you think, as a musician? Your greatest strength? Um... I don't, I mean, this is going to sound so boring, but I think, <laughs> I think it's true. I think I'm like a very consistent musician, you know? And I think like when producers track, they like to work with me because I can track things can, you know, over and over again and I could do it without getting too bored with it or I can harmonize a thing easily. Um, so that's not like the wildest, like, you know, ex like thing you might want to say about yourself. Uh, but I think that, and I think what thing people might not know too much about me from watching us live or hearing our records is I love lyrics. I'm like a big sounding board for Colin uh, lyrically. Cause I did like at one point before I played electric guitar, I, I just listened to like Paul Simon and, and Bob Dylan and Neil Young and, and of course uh, the Beatles and the Stones. So like all those guys, they just, you know, they, they, they're wordsmiths like to the nth degree. And I think that's one of the things we really admire and, and try to, you know, carry into our music. And also, what is your weakness, do you think, as a musician? I'm consistent. <laughs> I thought you might uh, say that. Yeah, so it's just like one of those things where, you know, I, I, you know there's two guitar players in Aerosmith, right? And everybody wants to be Joe Perry because he's like the wild, creative, like you'll never get it the same way twice. But Brad is like the guy who will give you something good every time. You know, like the, I, I work, we worked with Jack Douglas on our second record. He told us this over and over again. He was like, we were tracking Joe and he'd hit a wall and he was, you just have to get him in his first couple of takes and hope he got it, you know? And then he hit a wall and it wouldn't get any better. Whereas with Brad, you could do it over and over and over and try all these different things. And it was always good. You know what I mean? Uh, so I think, I think I possess a bit of that quality as much as I'd rather be Joe Perry. You know, I think everybody would rather be Joe Perry. <laughs> I don't know, though. I mean, I always like going back to Guns N' Roses. I love Slash, but Izzy was always more intriguing to me. Yeah, but I think Izzy has that Joe thing where he's like uh, a uh, like a, more of an artist. He's like more painting. And I, think, I actually think Slash is like a, a schooled player. I think, I think you know, working with people that have worked with him, and I know the guys in his band, and he seems very disciplined and schooled, actually. So I could play like that. I mean, I, I can't play like Slash, but I mean, I could get down with his process, you know, I, I like to know what I'm doing ahead of time and I like to execute it well, um, which isn't the most like, you know, rock and roll thing to say, I guess. Um, I know that you're, you're in the middle of a tour. What's it like now to tour? You have a family. Is it hard to be on the road and, and away from your kid terrorizing your dog? Yeah, I have two now. I have two kids too. Um, we have a young, a younger one, six months. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's a little harder. There's no doubt, but um, we all, 
are very accepting of, of the situation. My wife, I've always done what I do. So she's never known me to do any different. And, um, we just try to get a few, a few ground rules together. Like I try not to be gone for more than three weeks at a time. Cause that gets really, really tough. And so if, if you are, you just build it into your schedule, you fly them out or you fly home. If you have a couple of days off and you just do your best, you know, cause one, one of the things I like about it is when I'm home, I'm, I'm a full-time stay at home dad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I'm still doing business and doing stuff like this, but it's like, uh, you know, I can go now go to the park for three hours if I want with my son. And not everybody has a job where they have the liberty to do that. And as a result, we'll have a, our own unique relationship. You know, um, it's all it all remains to be seen how it plays out. But I think we're we're happy when we're all together and I'm not doing anything. I'm not rushing out the door at nine every morning or whatever. Last question. Your your work ethic, you and your brother both have a great work ethic he's very prolific as a songwriter you you were saying you're very steady with what you do do you think that came from your dad's uh professorial background do you think that that was helpful in terms of um forming your own sensibility it's a it's probably very likely i never really thought of it that way because he was very much more he would fill our heads with like so you want to be a musician you got to play every day you got to work really hard and he, i think that was informed by the fact that he couldn't make it work for himself as a professional musician he gigged and he wrote songs and he had a band but he was doing it while he was in school and he saw i think he got a glimpse of how hard it is to really rise above you know especially when everybody and their dog wants to play guitar and and, and sing a sing a, a song at a show so so he was very much in our early days like i'm talking 13 14 15 years old being like well if you really want to do this yeah, I'll buy you a guitar, but you got to play it. I want to hear you play every single day. And you got to, you don't just get better like by accident. You know what I mean? So, and that was probably informed A by again, his, his not being able to do it, but also by his, you know, professorial tendencies. Are you an optimistic guy? Yes. Yeah. I, I'm the optimist. And I think Colin would be considered the realist that borders on pessimist. <laughs> that's, that's the, you know, I answered the phone once on the road and I was, and I was under the weather and this was about like 10 years ago or even more, maybe when we had one cell phone in the van um, and we were on tour in the States and I picked it up and it was Gordy calling who knows both me and Colin really well. And I was like, hello. And I guess I sounded kind of down. And he goes, Hey Colin, I'm like, no, this is John Angus. He goes, well, it must be John Angus in a bad mood because it sounds like Colin in a good mood. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that sort of said it all about us. Well, I uh, I think uh, you are you maintain the Gallagher's will get together. You say brothers brothers will always. I guarantee it. I think the Kinks are going to get back together too, and I think I think the Gallagher's will inevitably. They're already saying you know such. I also think the Robinsons eventually will. And Rich is a buddy uh, of mine. We've collaborated with him. We've written some songs, and he's played on some stuff. Um, I think that you know. I don't know. First of all, what they made together was magical and beautiful and shouldn't be taken for granted. And they should get back together for that reason. And I think that, you know, one of the good things about in a, being a sibling band is you can overcome just about anything, you know, um, just because that's the way you were raised. You know, you'd be, be you know, throwing each other out of a tree one minute and eat dinner the next. So you got to you got to get over it. You uh, you're already one for three. The kinks are back together. I heard. I mean, I heard they were making noise about it. Yeah. Is that confirmed? That's confirmed. 
Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. And you're gonna sound it's gonna sound like a setup. I didn't know that for sure. But I, I heard yeah. the rumor about a month ago. Yeah, you're one you're one for three. So let's see if you go three for three. Well but at one point <laughs> You heard it here first. Folks. That's right. You heard it here first. Hey, I appreciate your time and I, I love your band and I always I've been on board since about two thousand ten. Um cool. and I love this record and I'm excited. I hope you guys come to San Francisco. Yeah, man. It's been too long. I would love yeah. to get back to San Francisco. Well, I, uh, I will I will show up if you're there. So I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Thanks, Alex. Hey, man. Thanks for your time and congratulations. Cheers, man. Thanks, buddy. The name of the album is Civilian Airs. The name of the band is The Trues. Want more information? Go to thetruesmusic.com. Order the album, see those guys on tour, and uh, buy a shirt. If you find yourself on iTunes, please subscribe to Stereo Embers, the podcast, and uh, subscribe to Bombshell Radio as well. And if you have the time, please rate and review the program. Uh, it would mean the world to us. It's our new substitute for human intimacy. Now, if there's a guest you want me to interview for the program, drop me a line. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com or on Twitter at Embers Editor. We're also on Instagram now, at Embers Podcast. Okay? All right. We're all set. Uh, let's close things off with Bar Star. This is the new single from the Trues album, Civilian Airs. Thank you, as always, for listening. And I will see you next week right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. This old heart, it sets me free. Drink